This is BT Wolf, and this is Orange Juice for the Ears, my new series for Dub Lab Radio. And this morning, I'm super happy to welcome onto the show the king of British bespoke and Savile Row tailor, David Mason. Now, David is not only the creative director of legendary James Bond tailor, Anthony Sinclair, but he also recently revived the rock star label, Mr. Fish, who is tailored to the likes of Hendrix, Bowie, Jagger, and really the reason that David and I first connected back at his incredible home in London. David, do you want to tell us a little bit about your home? Yes, I'm, I'm very lucky to be living in the, the former home of of Jimi Hendrix and the sort of rock star story started in 1965 when Ringo Starr got the lease on this particular property and he was there for about a year then he moved out and and his his fellow Beatle Paul McCartney moved in and used it as a recording studio and he wrote and recorded Eleanor Rigby and I'm looking through you there and uh, he eventually left and Jimi Hendrix arrived and life got very exciting there for a while, uh, until 1968 when he was asked to leave and uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono moved into the premises. So we have a blue plaque on the wall that commemorates their time there. But that's, ju- that's just for Lennon. I mean, so the, ama- is, yeah. the amazing thing about this house, and we'll get more in, into the house, the thing about giving David Mason an intro, it's sort of impossible because... Um, you know, storytelling is really at the heart of everything he puts his name to. And so in, in my eyes, it's kind of entirely fitting that you ended up living at one of London's most historically rich houses. Um, you know, you think The Wind Cries Mary, the song that we just heard, it was written in the living room where we first had tea. Um, you know, Eleanor Rigby, Yoko and Lennon got naked for the cover of, of Double Virgins. Um and so, you know, when we met, um, and we met, I think it was at the Royal Albert Hall for, yeah. for a Michael Caine uh, tribute concert. And, um, and then, you know, that meeting led to sort of weaving this mus- musical album jacket, which was sort of part of the revival of Mr. Fish, you know, this iconic tailor who dressed Bowie, Jagger, Hendrix in the 60s and 70s, which you revived, just like um, Anthony Sinclair. Um, and I remember us sort of being in this living room and me just being totally overwhelmed by all the history and this this sort of feeling that you were literally, you were in the jewel of London and no one really knows about it. It's still relatively secret. Um, and then from there, creating this jacket, which sort of told the story of you, the house of this record, and laughing that maybe it would end up in the V&A. <laughs> and, then, and then it did. And I, and I remember sort of both of us thinking like, well, maybe Hendrix and Lennon are up there sort of pulling the strings and making some of this happen. Because you have that feeling when you go into that place. And actually just when you talk, when I talk to you about anything that you're doing, there's always this feeling of like, of 
of magic and serendipity and and these stories weaving together and um so it, i'm so delighted that you're on this show and you're going to share some of the music that has inspired you you know throughout your life and has sort of informed the person that you are um so the you know the idea of this is is really to look at music beyond entertainment as something that's core to our humanity, our identity, our ability to connect. And um, the title of the show, Orange Juice for the Ears, is taken from Oliver Sacks, neurologist, and one of his quotes about the power of music, which is, music can lift us out of a depression or move us to tears. It is a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ear. And I'd just like to start, before we get into the music that has sort of um, taken you on a journey, um, you know, what does that quote mean to you? Um, it, it reminds me very much of uh, Shakespeare's quote, of, uh, if music be the food of love, then play on, and let's eat as much of it as we possibly can. Um, I, it's, it's always been an important part of my life. It's been a long journey um, from the uh, working class council estate in, uh, in the north of England to John Lennon's home in, uh, in Montague Square in Marlborough. And uh, part of growing up, or so much of growing up, was, was about escapism and, uh, and dreaming, really, uh, this fantasy that... Uh, that, we, that came around uh, listening to music, uh, going, to the, uh, going to the cinema. We had a black and white television at home, but on Saturdays I would go to the Roxy Cinema for the, for the matinee, and uh, I could dream and get lost there. Um, the costumes, of course, were very important to me. What I was seeing, the storyline, um, the costume, and then the music, which brought everything together and, uh, and could transport me to another place. Was that in any way connected to when music had that real impact or a song had a real impact on you for the first time? Yeah. Um, the first movie I can remember going to see, oddly enough, was, was a James Bond <laughs> film. And uh, I went along with my, my parents. Which I James must, Bond? It was George Lazenby, who lives in Santa Monica. And uh, bizarrely, I recently made a suit for him. But uh, it, it was my first Bond experience. And uh, John Shays and me had only starred in one film, which was on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which was in 1969. So I was seven or eight years uh, of age when I saw it. And uh, I can remember looking at Diana Rigg thinking, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. Uh, and sadly, um, she was assassinated by Spectre agents at the end of the movie, um, which was heartbreaking. And, uh, and I can remember to this day sort of feeling myself well up <laughs> with emotion. But my father was sitting next to me and, uh, and I really didn't want him to see me cry. So I was biting my lip and trying to put a brave face on it. Uh, and then the music played and um, it was sort of even more emotional. Uh, I didn't look at him. Perhaps uh, my father had tears rolling down his face. <laughs> was, he, was he not particularly emotional? Um, not on the outside. Um, he'd, had a, he'd had a pretty tough uh, upbringing. Um, he, he was a hard man, definitely on the outside. Uh, 
but soft on the inside. And what was the song? It was Louis Armstrong, We Have All the Time in the World. We have all the time in the world. Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Ears on Dub Lab. Um, and I'm very happy to be joined today with the incredible um, king of British bespoke and the Savile Road tailor, David Mason, who also happens to be creative director for James Bond as Anthony Sinclair and also Mr. Fish, who dressed Hendrix, Bowie, Jagger, um, all these amazing rock stars in the 60s and 70s. Um, and we're listening to the music that has um, been impactful to David uh, over the course of his life. Um, and that was We Have All the Time in the World by Louis Armstrong. And that was the first song that you kind of really remember imprinting um, on you in a big way. And that was part of the which James Bond film? Well, Her Majesty's Secret Service. Okay. And, um, and that connected with Diana Rigg being shot and you being devastated. <laughs> um, I still am. I haven't really got over it. What I think is amazing is, you know, what if you could go back to seven, eight-year-old David and whisper in his ear that one day he would go on to be James Bond's tailor? Yeah, um, I wouldn't have believed it. I mean, it, I have to pinch myself now, really. Um, it, it's, uh, it's, it's been a great journey. And uh, I, I mentioned earlier that... Uh, you know, going to the Roxy Cinema at the weekend was the chance to dream. And, uh, but to live the dream is, uh, is really how I feel and uh, very, very lucky. What was it like growing up in Manchester at that time? I read in one interview you described it as the grim industrial north. <laughs> yeah, um, it wasn't that I was unhappy. Uh, I had a happy childhood. Um, it, it lacked glamour, I suppose. And um, what the cinema and, and music uh, offered was, was a taste of that, um, which has, has always been embraced, um, particularly by working class kids in, post, in post-war Britain. Um, there's so many different subcultures that, uh, that were born. And, uh, and I think it was out of escapism, um, trying to find an identity. And uh, you know, 19... You think post-war 19, 1954, um, food was still rationed in the UK, and it was it was gloomy. I, I wasn't part of that era, <laughs> um, but, you but know, there was still the echo of that. Yeah, I, rationing finished in nineteen fifty four, and in nineteen fifty five, Bill Haley here was rocking around the clock, and and the Teddy Boy movement was, was born. Um, and what, it, what fascinates me uh, about the subcultures is, is the uniform that they adopt. And with the Teddy Boys, it was a sort of Edwardian um, frock coat, which that was, was known as a drape coat, um, with, with drainpipe trousers uh, and beetle crushes. And, and I think, how did that start? Who was the person who decided, I'm going to wear this outfit? Um, but it becomes a uniform. Um, and then the music binds the community. Uh, so it's rock and roll with the Teddy Boys. And 
then there were um, mods and rockers. So you've got competing subcultures with different types of music and and uh, and opposite extremes in the t- in the uh, in the way they dress. And then skinheads and uh, soul boys and glam rockers and punk rockers and and on it goes. Um, absolutely fascinating. And the, I, I think the, the the clothing was so important. The mu- music was important. I don't think either would have worked without the other. As a teenager, was there someone or you know a band or an album that was sort of very meaningful to you in the way that on both the sort of clothing and the and the music side? Yeah, um, in 1976, so I was 13 years of age formative years um, and there was the sort of James Bond of the music business it was Brian Ferry and his band Roxy Music I mean given that I used to go to the Roxy Cinema before I'd heard anything they played Roxy Music sounded like a very cool band um, but Brian Ferry uh, he sort of had it all the looks uh, the suits that were made by a Savile Row tailor, Anthony Price, quite often in leather, in pink, or lemon, <laughs> sky blue. Um, and the supermodel girlfriend, of course. Helps. Uh, yeah, <laughs> um, who in 1976 um, featured on the, uh, on the album cover of Siren. And that, so that would be the album that you would say as a teenager really impacted yes, upon you. absolutely. Was there a particular track? Yeah. Um, love is the drug. Okay, well, this is Beauty Wolf with David Mason for Orange Juice for the Years. And you're listening to Love is the Drug, Roxy Music. Hey, this is BT Wolf. You're listening to Orange Juice for the Ears for Dub Lab. Um, and this show really explores the impact that music has had on some very amazing people. And today, one of the very amazing people, person, is David Mason, um, Taylor uh, extraordinaire and also creative director of Anthony Sinclair and Mr. Fish, amongst many other incredible labels so um we just heard love is the drug roxy music um from the album siren which was an album that had a big impact on david as a 13 14 year old um growing up in in manchester and uh i have to ask was that a song that you would dance to at the school discotheque (laughs) yeah um and and it was um it was quite an easy dance move really um you you'd simply imitate brian ferry on stage uh shrugging his shoulders and sort of uh strutting from one one leg onto the other and repeating um i feel like i could pick that up yeah you you didn't need a partner which which was pretty good because i went to an all boys school okay would have made it difficult (laughs) at the school discotheque um, and with the, you know, obviously there were there were a lot of factors that appealed to you, but were Brian's suits a big draw? Like seeing that kind of, you know, that style and that sense of fashion, um, was it part of falling in love with the music? Was it also the, the tailoring? Yeah, absolutely. Um, an enormous part of it. And um, 
forgive me for repeating myself again, but the escapism, um, you know, to be able to wear beautiful clothes like that um, was something, again, I, I could only I could only dream of at the time. Had you sort of realised you were interested in tailoring at that point? No, not not really. I was interested in, in fashion, but... Um, it, it wasn't until uh, I was still at school, but it, it was, I was probably 18 years of age. There was a school trip organised to London. It was the first time I'd ever been to the to the capital, and I think we we had a, a tour in the morning, um, which was organised by the staff, and then in the in the afternoon we were free to wander around. And uh, I knew precisely where I was going. I went to I went to Savile Row to see where. James Bond and Brian Ferry had had their suits made. And, uh, and that's how it all began. Wasn't there also something around you having very long legs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, um, I, I left school, went to university and, and studied chemistry. So I, it, it was clear to me that uh, I'd, I'd be following a career in, in science and, and industry and... and uh, and not involved with the arts. Um, I was always interested in the arts, but uh, when I was at school, uh, drama, art, or something that you perhaps do in your spare time, um, but if you wanted to get a proper job, you'd have to study mathematics and chemistry and, uh, and get a proper degree. So that's, um, so I, I studied maths, physics, and chemistry at, at school, and then took a degree in, in chemistry. Um, but I always, always had this interest in, in music and fashion. So I, I worked in a clothing store. I was the Saturday boy at a, a shop in Manchester. And uh, apart from making the tea and serving customers, I, I had to take alterations to the local tailor. And yes, I, I have long legs. <laughs> and uh, the, the trousers that we, pants that we sold in the store, um, were made with unfinished bottoms. And I wanted to have a turn-up or a cuff on the bottom of these, these trousers. And they were never long enough um, to get a cuff. I had to just have to have plain hemmed bottoms. So I explained this, this problem to, to this tailor. And he said, well, I'll make a pair for you, which he did in black watch tartan with a big cuff on the bottom. And I wore them in the store. And people would come up to me and say, I, I like the trousers, but I, but I can't find them in the store which, of course, we, they wouldn't because we didn't sell them. So it didn't take me long to realise I could meet them at six o'clock and measure them up and give the order to this tailor and I'd earn a little bit more money at the weekend. And, and so from there, was that the beginning of it, you know, yeah, just developing it, into a career? It was a fun thing hmm. to do. Um, uh, it provided me with some, uh, some beer money <laughs> at university. <laughs> Um, but it, it took a while um, before I, I realised that, that you know, this could be a career mm. for me. And uh, the, I, I, had, I had people, customers, <laughs> coming back from all trousers. And they wanted jackets to go with the trousers to pair as a suit. So I, I found a coat maker and started selling suits. And, and on it went. Um, by the time I graduated, um, I, I sort of had a a business that could generate enough income for me to survive. And how did you end up... So what I love is when you were 17, 18, you went looking for James Bond's tailor. Yes. Um, how did that then connect with you taking over Anthony Sinclair or reviving it, not even taking over it, because it had been dormant 
for a while for uh, probably 20 or 30 years and uh, so i um i found myself eventually working in Savile Row uh, alongside a, a tailor called Richard Payne who was running his own business and I, I got to know him quite well and I, I was having a chat with some of the other tailors in, in the workroom one day about James Bond and uh, the people who made his clothes and the Anthony Sinclair name came up and uh, these tailors told me that Richard owned the Anthony Sinclair name it turned out that he was unbeknown to me he was Anthony Sinclair's apprentice and I thought, well, we should bring that name back, revive it. And I mentioned this to, to Richard, and he told me he was about to retire. So I wouldn't have the opportunity. I, I couldn't really do it without him. Now, that was the bloodline. But uh, and he retired, but I managed to, to, uh, to pull him kicking and screaming out of retirement. And, <laughs> um, and we relaunched Anthony Sinclair in January 2012. And that was celebrating a 50-year... Yeah, it was it was good timing. It was the fiftieth anniversary of the Bond franchise. So the um, and and what really helped was that um, sort of the first week in business, we were approached by Eon, the the owners of the Bond franchise, who told us they were they were going to put on an exhibition to celebrate fifty years of Bond style, and they had all of the clothes through all of the actors apart from one, that's Sean Connery, and of course in the nineteen sixties they didn't have the budget for the costume that they'd have today. So only one of each outfit was made. And after filming, Sean Connery would more often than not help himself to. So there was nothing in the archive. So they asked us to recreate these Bond pieces, the Sean Connery suits for this exhibition. And, uh, and that was a great help. Wow. So from, from Bond to Bowie... Yeah. <laughs> and um and we're going to get more into Mr. Fish in a minute but um I have to ask as part of discovering your orange juice for the years um when me and Bob Wilson Robert Wilson who won the Nobel prize for discovering cosmic background radiation using this incredible horn antenna very serendipitously did a broadcast of my record raw space into space um it made me think about you know what you would send into space as sort of a reflection of our humanity or a way of communicating whatever it is um so i have to ask what would you send into space yes well i immediately thought of david bowie and uh, and space oddity but it seemed a little too obvious to me. <laughs> um, so I, I thought The Man Who Sold the World would be a good choice. Perfect choice. Let's take a listen to that now. This is BC Wolf, and you are listening to Orange Juice for the Ears. And that was The Man Who Sold the World by Bowie, just absorbing some of those amazing vibes. Um, and that was David Mason Taylor Extraordinaire's choice for what he would send into space, um, which is actually very fitting because one thing that is kind of a shame about radio, you can't see us. And you can't see how incredibly well-dressed um, Mr. Mason is, making me feel very sort of scruffy. Um, but it looks absolutely immaculate. If you could see him, you would 
Marvel. And um, and why I love the choice of that song is um, the man who sold the world the the album cover. Um, Bowie is wearing this incredible sort of flowing dress and that was a Mr. Fish that was the the label that um, David Mason went on to revive and is now the creative director of Um, and Mr. Fish dressed Bowie Hendrix Jagger um, and he'd famously put men in dresses is that correct it is yeah Um, his story didn't start there he was a shirt maker at at a company called Turnbull and Asser on, on German Street and in the early 60s, when Anthony Sinclair was fitting Sean Connery for his suits, Michael Fish, before he became Mr. Fish, was a, was a cutter making shirts at, at Turnbull and Asset. And Sean Connery was sent there for his shirts they, that he would wear in, in the Bond films. So I was aware of this. And having revived Anthony Sinclair um, and making the James Bond suits, I thought maybe we should have a James Bond shirt to go with it. Um, but his story's quite incredible. In, in the late 60s, he set up his own boutique, which was called Mr. Fish. And, and the look really then, this is a swinging 60s, uh, Peacock Revolution, and in, in the UK, it was led by Mr. Fish. And uh, the look was more Austin Powers than James Bond, really. And he went on famously to make uh, lots of shirts and psychedelic um, colours and, and, and pants and then the dresses both for, for um, David Bowie and, and Mick Jagger and I, I thought this was an incredible story so I, uh, I got in touch with his family uh, and discussed the idea of, of bringing the name back to life which we did a couple of years ago and what I love I mean and our story is sort of interwove at that point because one of the one of the garments in the Mr. Fish revival was the Montague Square album jacket um, which was cut by you (laughs) usually I'm saying cut by the tailor dress and now it's you and um, and it was cut out of fabric woven with my music recorded in the room where McCartney wrote Eleanor Rigby Hendrix wrote The Wind Cries Mary and um, what I love is that you reversed it you put a a woman in a suit jacket. <laughs> yes, yeah. Yes, um, it, it seemed quite appropriate <laughs> dressing, uh, dressing men uh, in ladies' clothing and then the lady in, a, in masculine tailoring. Also because I'm very manly, so it works. <laughs> <laughs> but then what I love is, you know, the, the pairing of Mr. Fish and... 34 Montague Square. I mean, it's like it couldn't be a more perfect home to revive that label. Um, And it feels like, again, it's just this sort of very magical, serendipitous coincidence of these, of history and, you know, fashion and art and music and um, tailoring all sort of lining up and all coming, you know, all sort of coalescing. Yeah, and and these things really weren't planned. It's like working alongside Anthony Sinclair's apprentice, and I, I was unaware of it for so long. Um, and the way things unfolded with, with Mr. Fish is quite extraordinary. But coming across Montague Square, I was, I was looking for a tailor shop in London uh, because the, Mr., the, the Anthony Sinclair business was, uh, was a success when, when we launched, and I was sharing premises, tailoring premises at the time. I needed my own place. And I was also looking for a studio apartment, somewhere to 
rest my head as well. And I couldn't find either. It was months and months I was searching for a place. And after three or four months, I, I got in touch with the, the agents to say, look, don't send anything else to me. Uh, I've, I found something. It's just taking so, so much of my time. I, I'd given up. The following day, the following day, an email to me slipped through the net and uh, said, look, you're, you're looking in Mayfair for premises. I found something in Marlborough, which is the uh, other side of Oxford Street. And uh, I thought, well, that's a bad start. And it's not the size you want. And it's not the layout you want. It wasn't anything that I wanted. But there was this interesting story. It's got a blue plaque on the wall. So I told the agent I would be there the following morning with my accountant and our checkbook. And I was. And uh, we've never looked back. But, okay, I know we opened the show um, talking a bit about it. That flat (laughs) is so crazy. And did you know when you went to see it, you know, maybe you knew the Lennon plaque um, was on the front of it, but did you realise there was this whole history, beginning with Ringo, moving into McCartney, um, moving into Hendrix, moving into Yoko Lennon? No, I didn't. Um, a shiver went down my spine, actually, as you mentioned it to me. It, I, I still almost can't believe it myself. Um, we love the place, and uh, as do our clients who come to visit us there. Um, and a couple of years um, into, uh, in, into our time there, um, we had a customer who was a, a bit of a James Bond nerd, um, and he liked the place. And he, he said, you, you do know that Ian Fleming used to live diagonally opposite. No. <laughs> in Monte Cristo. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, and I thought, well, you really could not make this up. <laughs> God, it's just incredible. Um, and, it's, and it still surprises me that, you know, so apart from the people that came to that creation of the musical jacket you know the guys that set up mojo and with the sort of early days of all these rock you know iconic music magazines and they knew about it because of course they would because they're super you know they'll research it but otherwise it seems like it's this kind of you know this secret that people still don't really yes you know they'll know abbey road but they won't know montague square yeah it, it's true. Um, and the same goes for Anthony Sinclair um, and Mr. Fish and a, a host of other artisans um, who created great clothes for great people in, in that sort of golden age of popular culture in, in, in the UK. And, um, and, and this was before brands really mm-hmm. existed and celebrity endorsement, product placement and all the things that go on when that's, I think that's the most amazing part of it is it's real storytelling. It's long form storytelling that is driven by, you know, history and and resonance and sort of these threads that connect, you know, Hendrix to Bowie to Mr. Fish to Anthony Sinclair back to you. Um, and there's no shortcut for that. You know, there's no... Um, it's sort of it's but then the wonderful thing is when people discover it they feel like they're discovering something so magical that you know has always existed but they're only learning about for the first time and that's wonderful yes it is um so very sad 
question, but um, <laughs> but as a weird six-year-old kid, I the first song I sort of identified as being something I wanted to have in my life at some point, and it's and now I kind of am not embarrassed about it, but I, I'd change it, but I can't change it because as a six-year-old, I thought I want to have. I can see clearly now. Um, Jimmy Cliff at my funeral mm. and that was just very clear in my head um, because I guess I was thinking about you know uh, what maybe what I want to leave behind in some way um, so is there a is there a way you'd like to uh, depart this earth <laughs> <laughs> is there a song that you think sort of summarizes your your time here yeah um, I think there is um, you know for a lot of people fashion is a very very serious business. I can remember 2012, where there was quite a lot of publicity surrounding the the relaunch of James Bond's original Taylor, and uh, we we had the press uh, sending photographers to to take shots of me. And this really it only happened in school portraits, and you're told to say cheese before the <laughs> camera clicks. Um, and these photographers are saying, David, why are you smiling? Can't you look a little bit moodier? <laughs> this is this is a fashion shoot. I thought, gosh, this is this is really serious. It's not really me. And uh, the, this particular magazine um, was published. I sent a copy to my mother, and uh, she said, David, I I didn't recognise you at first because you weren't smiling. What happened? Were you angry about something? <laughs> I say, no, Mum. It's the fashion business. Um, so I, you know, I, of course, it, it, it's something that I'm very passionate about. I love it, but it's, it's so much fun, and I don't think it should be taken too seriously. Uh, so my, uh, my song for my memorial service would be The Kinks, dedicated follower of fashion. Perfect. Let's have a listen. <laughs> They seek him here, they seek him there. This is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years for Dub Lab. And today we are chatting with the amazing Savile Row Taylor, Mr. Fish, um, Anthony Sinclair, David Mason. I just, I, I had to start with Mr. Fish because dedicated follower of fashion feels like it was written for or with the sort of flamboyance of Mr. Fish. I just see Mr. Fish when I hear that song. <laughs> so do I. Yeah. Um, it, it's it, incredible story, Mr. Fish. He, he, he really crammed a lot into a very short career. Um, after starting his own business in 1968 and dressing the lights of David Bowie and, uh, and Mick Jagger, uh, that followed like a who's who um, of everybody who was anybody around that time. Uh, so da the artist David Hockney, um, uh, movie stars Rock Hudson. Didn't um, he also uh, do Muhammad Ali's Rumble in the Jungle Gown? Yeah, um, sort of the, in the, the biggest sporting event in, in the 20th <laughs> century, um, the Rumble in the Jungle. Um, yeah, Muhammad Ali's African-inspired gown was made by Mr. Fish. 
it's remarkable. But I feel like you've also crammed a huge amount into it. Well, you haven't left us yet, so short <laughs> time, still ongoing time. But, you know, everything that you do, um, what I love about it is it's really, it's unapologetically long form in terms of the the richness and the depth and the breadth and the history. And I think we were talking about it a bit, but, you know, I mean, bespoke tailoring, it is really about the storytelling, isn't it? And it's about that, what it takes 60 hours to make one suit. Yeah. Um, the, the devotion that it, it takes from the craftsman to, to learn how to do that six, seven, eight years apprenticeship. Um, to craft these amazing, amazing garments that um, that have clothed the most famous people in the world in the last two hundred years. When it's the you know we, I was talking about it a bit with Ali on the first episode of this show, you know because my dad was a, a rare bookseller. Um, is a rare bookseller. God, I have to stop thinking about death. And, um, you know, and he, he dealt in, um, Ptolemy and Copernicus and Darwin and Galileo. And as a kid, I would be able to, because he couldn't afford a shop, I would handle these books. And, you know, he'd say, you feel free because they're made to last, you know, they're made to endure. Um, and I feel like that's also what you're doing. It's the same with, with making a great record, you know, making a great, um, you know, a suit or jacket, it's like these, they live on and they become, you know, artifacts that connect us with another time and place. And they become sort of both art forms, but vehicles of, of telling a story and vehicles of celebrating history. It is. And, and it's, it's particularly nice when you, you get a young man who, who comes to see us and he's, he's brought a suit with him that needs altering that may have belonged to his father um, or even his grandfather a morning coat that was made in the 1920s or a dinner jacket that was uh, that was made just after the war uh, and you're bringing it back to life and uh, it's very special so in that way of of you know grandfather father son um and i know you work with your son would there be um an album that is particularly meaningful to you that you would even if he already knows it one that you would pass on to to him yeah um this was quite an easy one for me, um, in part uh, because both of my sons, while I've been here in the United States over the past few weeks, actually went to see this band play live, which is something I've never done. Um, although in, in, the, in the 1970s, it seemed to be the soundtrack that was playing through my life. But, uh, it's Fleetwood Mac, uh, Rumours. And we're going to listen to Don't Stop and David Mason don't you stop <laughs> is there just before we say goodbye to everyone this morning is there one thing that you're hoping to leave behind with the work that you're doing um not really i i just think it's it's nice to keep these things alive preserve history and celebrate great artists great craftsmen and uh you know it's been a it's been a long journey from manchester to marlevin and on to Manhattan, but um, you know, don't stop. It sort of makes me think about Winston Churchill. You're, uh, if you're going through hell, keep going. Don't stop. Well, on that note, this is Don't Stop uh, Fleetwood Mac signing off. BT Wolf, 
Orange Juice for the Ears with the amazing David Mason. Thank you so much. My pleasure.